0: So for us, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah again, our second week in the book of Jonah, in a larger context of our series on the Minor Prophets. So remember from last week, the Minor Prophets are these neglected 12 books at the end of the the Old Testament. And I think people ignore these books because they're largely confusing, uh, don't know what's going on, what are they talking about, Uh, it feels kind of cryptic at times, Uh, but the the important thing is to know that these men that are speaking, th- these that are writing, are speaking to real people in real time, in real history. They lived during a certain period of, uh, of time, and so Jonah is in that period of time, kind of uh, the 700s A.D., before the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. And so there's a lot of rebellion, there's a lot of idolatry going on among God's people, and there is this enemy force uh, kind of to the, north, uh, the northeast of Israel called Assyria, and they are violent. And basically the prophets, they hear the word of the Lord, and then they speak the word of the Lord. God gives them his word, and then he speaks uh, God's word to the people, basically calling people back to obedience. So it, it, they're over, not overly confusing if you put them in history, historical context and then also just understand that God gives them a word and they speak it. More often than, that, than not, that's what they're speaking. Maybe 1-2% is about kind of foretelling future things. Most of it is calling God's people back to faithfulness. So, we're in chapter 2 of Jonah. Uh, Actually, we're going to start in the last verse of chapter 1, and you'll see why. So, would you stand as we just uh, reflect our submission to the Word of God? God is speaking, and we long to hear from Him. So, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just ask that you would take your word, uh, one of the more familiar stories of the Bible. Father, I pray that you would take it and help us not to be thinking that we're so familiar that we have nothing to learn. But God, by your Spirit and the power of your Spirit... Would you help us to see not only our waywardness, but your amazing grace and your amazing mercy. Father, draw us to that place where we would slow down, that we would assess, that we would take stock uh, in God, that that we would see those ways that we're going our own way. Father, that we need to run back to you. Uh, So God, thank you that you would put a wayward prophet in your word not just the people that nail it and get everything right, but Father, uh, the, the encouragement for those of us who often go our own way is that you are gracious and you are merciful uh, even when you call us to do the opposite, to, to do one thing and we do the opposite. So God, meet us there. Speak by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you think about... Uh, You think about our world and kind of the culture that we live in. We live in an absolutely frantic, fast-paced world, right? Even when we stop and slow down, we pick something up to stimulate our brain. We can't stop. Uh, We can't slow down, Uh, and so if someone says, you need to slow down, it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Um, and we just move on from it. It's almost as if that didn't even get uttered, and so when you all gave me the privilege of going on a sabbatical uh, starting in July and carrying over to October, um, that was such a gift, but I didn't know I needed it. And I would, I would assume that you, in your frantic nature of life, you might not know you need to slow down either. It, t- it took me two months to figure out I needed it. Uh, kind of like frustrated with what, how it was going and all of that. But God gave me time to think, time to assess, time to not have to deliver week over week, not have to do the regular course of action. Uh, and that was an immense gift. To me, to my family, to Linda, to our marriage. But I think more than anything, to me as a a son before God the Father. The gift came in that I started to find emotion that had been kind of buried. uh, Just all of a sudden feeling in ways that had been lost. And I would submit to you, it was only through the slowness of that time, that I was able to actually get there, or God was able to kind of get my attention and break into ways in my life uh, that is amazing. Well, I've been back now almost three months, and it is uncanny how familiar bad habits have already started to take root, right? That didn't take long. Uh, But at least I have a taste of what slowness feels like, and not just slowness to stop, but being able to be slow in life enough to slow down before our God. You know, even when we take time off from work, you know, what do we do? We feel frantic in our vacation because we don't want to waste this time, right? Right? It's like oh yeah we're off work let's not waste this as if rest doesn't count and is an absolute waste it's interesting that oftentimes when i take time off we we have a running joke around here that when i take a long period of time off i get sick it happened this past time i got we got covid Uh, remember a couple years ago before todd was here i took a few weeks where i wasn't going to preach And inside of two days of starting that, I got the flu and was in bed for seven or eight days. It's kind of like, it's as if we can't slow ourselves down, and so God does the favor for us of really slowing us down. You might say, that's an odd gift, COVID, the flu, Uh, but would I have stopped, would you have stopped in certain ways unless God in his grace does something uh, beyond the normal? And so the idea of slowing down is really where we are in the book of Jonah. Because chapter 1 is frantic. Chapter 1 is like, you know, just just firing on all cylinders. Chapter 2, the narrative just stops. And in that, we see Jonah in the belly of the fish, but ultimately recognizing the Lord's hand in the middle of all this. Remember, last week we looked at God's severe mercy. Those two words don't often go together. But, you know, Jonah does the exact opposite of what God commanded him. He goes in the opposite direction, and then God brings a wind that causes a tempest and a great storm where the boat that, that he's in, everybody and the sailors are fearing for their lives, uh, and God brought that. God brought in his mercy a severe storm. And so, uh, in all of this, we've got to see God's sovereign rule, his loving rebuke through very difficult things on the life of Jonah. Because if you look back at verse 17, and, and uh, hopefully have your Bible open, if you look back at 17 of chapter 1, it says that, G- that God appointed the fish to come and swallow Jonah. It was God's move to kind of designate a large fish. And yes, Jesus recounted this as a historical event. And so that is the claim of Scripture, that this is what happened. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is, the claim of Scripture is that this is a historical event in what God did. That God appointed the fish To come and swallow him. Three other times this this word for appointed is used. It's actually used in chapter four uh, three different times. Chapter four, verse six, God appointed a plant to grow up and cover Jonah. Uh, Chapter four, verse seven, God appointed a worm to eat the plant that he just appointed. Verse eight of chapter four, God appointed a scorching wind. So uh, God is all over this story This is not a story primarily about Jonah. It is about God and his hand, even in the midst of very difficult things. So the idea of a great fish. So let's kind of speak into that part of the story. Uh, That's all we really know. It's a large fish. The King James translation of Matthew 12, where Jesus comments on this, uh, they translated it as a whale, Unfortunately, that's not what the, the, the Hebrew speaks to, but that's the narrative that is most common in our culture. It's here that many skeptics of the Bible say, you know what, I can't believe that. I absolutely cannot believe, that if that's the claim of the Bible, I'm out. Because I have never seen the claim goes i've never seen anybody get swallowed by a fish or even sp- in, even beyond that spit up by a fish onto dry ground since i've never seen it before or it's in nowhere in history i cannot believe it well while i can appreciate that perspective where someone lands it misses the point of what god's the, the point that god's making the point God's making is he is saying that something—it uh, it is something that cannot be replicated. That's why it's a miracle. Uh, it, it can't be replicated by human effort. Uh, and it doesn't have a corollary event in history. That's the point, is that God, in his miraculous power, brings these things to occur. Now, I understand that it takes the power of God for us to be able to see and hear and rightly believe uh, the, God's hand in the midst of all of these things. But that is the claim. It is the power of God to appoint and bring a fish to swallow uh, Jonah. I almost said Noah. Okay? And, but what's, what's interesting, so you, you see that, uh, you see God's hand, but what do you see in verse 3 of chapter 2 is interesting. So God appointed the fish to come. In verse 3, what do we see? This is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, "For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me." Jonah finally realizes what the sailors who didn't know the Lord realized is that this is God all over this situation and he recognizes God's hand in it. God's in control. God sent the fish. God is in the storm. God brought the winds and the waves. And Jonah was in the sea and now the belly of the fish because God orchestrated it as such. In a sense, the fish was God's way to preserve Jonah's life. The fish saves him from drowning. So the fish is not not a punishment, isn't judgment on Jonah? The fish is actually salvation in some sense. The fish was also God's way of slowing Jonah down. So we said that chapter one was like rapid fire of activity. God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah flees in the opposite direction. A great wind, a tempest on the sea, the sailors crying out to their gods, Jonah sleeping. Uh, casting lots to see who's responsible rowing like crazy trying to get back to the land so they don't have to throw jonah overboard they can't do it so they finally throw him overboard the sea becomes calm and then verse 17 jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights in a sense we go from a tempest to quiet You know, it's one of those scenes in the movie, like, after the chaotic scene of, you know, like, war and all that stuff, like, there's no sound except for, like, a little drip of water, and you could just kind of picture Jonah in the middle, in the belly of the fish, kind of, you know, kind of like after the chaos has subsided, and the noise, there's silence and calm, but it's not simply to spare Jonah's life, but it's also to get him to reflect and humble himself. Now I would surmise, given the nature of struggle and reality of the difficulty of life, I would imagine a number of you have come in this morning and you are feeling some version of maybe the heavy hand of God on your life. Something maybe where God is saying that he is wanting you to slow down. It might be sickness, it might be a struggle, it might be something you're grieving, it might be who knows what, but but uh, it, it is God in the midst of your life. And what's often the case, if you're anything like me, difficulty enters your life, and you fight against it. You push against it. You want out of it, out of it as fast as you possibly can. And I'm not saying you know, go look for problems, but if struggle and difficulty comes into your life, the more we push against it. Could it be that the more we're pushing against the hand of God in our life, rather than God has brought these things. God brought a storm into Jonah's life. He brought a storm into the sailor's life. He brought the belly of a fish, I almost said whale, the belly of a fish to swallow Jonah. And the more we push against the the difficulty in our life, rather than actually receive it, At the very lowest level, God has allowed it to come into your life. I think rightly you could say God ordained it to come into your life. But are you pushing against it? Because what's wild in Jonah chapter 1, or Jonah chapter 1, the sailors that don't know the Lord, they're praying, and the prophet of God is what? Silent. He's not praying. But here we get in chapter 2, verse 1, we see, oop, I don't have it up there, Uh, but we see that he prays. We see Jonah prays. And and who does he pray to? It is the Lord his God. So the Lord, it's in all caps, that's the personal name of God, the Lord his God. Uh, It is Yahweh Elohim. So kind of the general name of God is Elohim, but he's praying to Yahweh Elohim, which is the personal name of God. This prayer from the belly of the fish He refers to his prayer in the waters that he calls out to the Lord. Where is God slowing you down? Because we've got to recognize his hand all over our lives. But then there's a sense where we go from just recognizing God's hand to actually receiving salvation from the Lord. Because Jonah's prayer, it basically tracks what's uh what's going on in that it tracks that God has brought him low his life is slipping away he needs to be rescued by God and then God rescues him and there's this response in Jonah but it happens in an interesting way because verse 1 verse 3 and verse 4 or chapter 1 3 and 4 are all prose okay they're telling a story chapter 2 is poetry Okay, it kind of breaks in, and what do we see and oftentimes in poetry is that repetition brings emphasis, and so oftentimes also it 's not chronological, and so what do we see is this thing called a chiastic structure okay uh, and if you 've taken uh, high school English recently, I was just doing this with rachel uh, that there 's a statement. Then a second statement, then a third statement, and then it comes back the other way in a mirroring of those things. Okay, statement one, statement two drives to statement three, but then two and th- uh, then it goes backwards. Statement two and statement one, kind of creating this mirror of language. You're like, what in the world does that mean for us? So uh, many commentators have pointed out that verse two to the first part of six is a chiasm. Okay. Uh, because he talks about the idea of, in verse 2 of Sheol. Okay, we're going to talk about what that is in a second. Then he talk, in verse 3 he talks about the seas. Driving to verse 4 where he feels his plight is that he is driven away from God. Coming back out of that, it's the waters. And then another word uh, for Sheol is the pit. Now you're like, what in the world is Sheol? It's a place of divine punishment. It's separation from the living God. It's separation from Yahweh. The pit is another phrase that the Old Testament uses to describe and depict this as well. It's, in a sense, the Old Testament version or depiction of hell. Sheol and the pit. That's where Jonah says he is as he is in the water Well, the next part is that he's in the seas and the waters. He gets that part, but it is much deeper than him drowning. He recognizes that what's going on in his life is he is going down to the pit. And there's this interesting play on words uh, in in Jonah in verse 1 and 2 because he cries out from the belly of the fish. But what does he say in verse 2? Out of the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of hell, I cried out to the Lord. That it's not just that he is having this physical struggle. He recognizes the, the significance before the living God of what's going on in his life. The structure just points to the depiction of death and condemnation where he has lost hope, he can't save himself, he's in anguish, he, he knew his life was slipping away. In verse 7, we're going to see, he says, my life was fainting away, kind of an idiom that, that kind of points to a soul curling up in itself, kind of like just, you know, kind of dying in itself. He was going down to death. That's what he felt. Second part of 6, Yet. I went down to the land whose bars closed in upon me forever. That's the concluding sentence of how he was feeling. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. That word yet is some versions translated as but. All of this is true, but God. All of this is happening, yet God was the one who brought my life up. And ultimately we end up at verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. It's interesting, because Jonah's sin and his rebellion did what? It brought him low. Do you you hear all the words of dissent in that prayer? You know, God brought me down. God brought me into the pit. I was going into the deep. The, The sin and rebellion of Jonah brought him down. The mercy and faithfulness of God raises him up. It helps us understand the fullness of salvation, because especially in the South, most people have been raised uh, if you, with at least a cultural Christianity. That church, or knowing God, or even talking about Jesus, it kind of is a nice icing on the cake of what life is. And that's not at all the picture of salvation. This is not cultural like niceties that God is throwing out here. It, this is a picture of salvation, that God brings us low to the point of absolute despair to then raise us up. You could say it is death and resurrection. That's the idea of salvation, that God resurrects us from the dead. That's how Jesus describes his ministry. What's interesting Remember, we read last, uh, last week, this is Jesus likening his ministry to the ministry of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah was in the fish three days, three nights. Jesus will be in the tomb for three days and three nights. And just like Jonah came out, Jesus will come out of the tomb. The point of salvation in this for for Jesus is the idea of resurrection. We rightly sing about the cross, but please don't forget the idea of resurrection is is a deep sense of salvation that the sign that Jesus is Lord is the same sign that uh, the same sign that Jonah gave. Jonah, seemingly dead, is now alive. Jesus, who is actually dead, is also alive. That Jonah experienced the fear of abandonment of God, and Jesus incurs the same. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would liken himself to Jonah, the apostate uh, prophet, you know, the prophet who actually goes the opposite direction, What's the, the abandonment that Jesus incurs on the cross before his resurrection? He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bears, he bore up under what we deserve so that we might be saved and might have new life through the resurrection. So, what's the only way to respond to this? Jesus goes on. After he says his ministry is like that of Jonah. He says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, speaking to those in the first century, and condemn it, for they, Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so what he's saying is the sign of Jonah demanded a response. The sign of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, demand a response too. Jonah was a a prophet of the Lord, but someone greater than Jonah was speaking to them and speaking to us at that moment. Later, he says, someone greater than Solomon is here. And uh, the the queen uh, says it to Solomon that the, the queen of the south, basically the queen of Sheba, came and sought wisdom, and yet the people of God didn't seek the wisdom of God. And what did they do? Nineveh, they repented but yet, the people of God that knew the things of God sat there silent and did nothing. So here's the, the, the operating danger of being around the church, being around the things of God, maybe even being raised in it. Are you so familiar with the things of God that it elicits no response from you? that the familiarity with the things of God has deadened your senses to God's goodness and his grace? Is it just a nice tack-on in your life? Jesus says something staggering because he's speaking to the Pharisees when he says this, the people who had their act together, whose lives everybody looked at and said those are the most God-honoring guys around. Jesus says that the men of Nineveh, these people that were violent killers, remember them? They will rise up at the judgment. They will rise up with this generation, the Pharisees, and condemn it because they repented and yet you sit here doing nothing. Those are staggering words because I don't think the South is too far off from the Pharisees. Kind of life clipping along, looks good on the outside, but internally you're resting on your own merit and on your own wisdom. And that's where we move to the idea of replacing false substitutes. Because here's Jonah down in the deep looking at Sheol, thinking he has been abandoned, yet God brings him up. And then this is, uh, here's his conclusion of his prayer. Jonah, in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, When my life was fainting away, that's that the soul was curling up on itself, I remembered the Lord And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. But those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So what is a vain idol? A vain idol is anything other than the living God that you stake your life on. The thing that if it was taken away, you would lose tons of sleep over. The thing that you, you know what, I need to have that in order for life to feel like it's worth living. The thing that your life serves and chases after, that's an idea of an idol. But those who chase after or regard vain idols, they reject the hope of God's steadfast love. So here's an interesting question. Those who pay regard to vain idols, who's Jonah talking about? Three options. And all your commentators are fighting with each other of who it is. Okay? Uh, Each one, regardless, you get to an interesting point. Is it Jonah himself? You know, those who pay regard to vain idols, basically chasing after his own way, they forsake the hope. He's come to realize it in the belly of the fish. He has now come back to trusting the Lord. That's one option. The other is that it's the nation of Israel, that he's representing God's people. Uh, Those who pay regard to vain idols, rather than the Lord himself, forsake their hope of steadfast love, the ones who actually know the things of God, or is he speaking about those sailors or pe- like like a pagan sailor that doesn't know anything of the, the things of the Lord, those serving in paying regard to vain idols? I think there are uh, probably solid cases for the last two, primarily, Israel and uh, those who don't know the Lord at all. I would side with the idea that this is speaking of God's people, Jonah being one of them, that disregard, uh, disregard the things of God and yet chase after all sorts of other things in this world. And so in Deuteronomy 29... It's kind of asking the question when the nations come and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Basically, you know, what caused the heat of this great anger? When God moved against his people, the nations are like, what's going on? I thought you were the people of God. They ask that question. This is the answer that comes back. Then the people will say, that's really small. All right, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom they had not, whom he had not allotted to them. It's interesting that, that the idea of abandoning the Lord is, is kind of like ingrained in the message that comes to God's people. And yet Jonah says in that, Those who regard vain idols, anything other than the living God, who chase after anything, are the ones who neglect and forsake his loving kindness. What's what's great is that that word for steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. And it's the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word grace. It is probably even more... It's even broader. It is the loving kindness of God. It is the unconditional faithfulness of our God. It is uh, God moving on behalf of his people. Those who chase after other things uh, are the ones who forsake their hope in the loving kindness of God. And then where does Jonah end up? He ends up with thankfulness. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. He recognizes that God has spared his life. God has slowed him down. He's come to realize, we're going to say partly, because he's going to blow it again in the next chapter and a half, uh, but somewhat realize uh, his, his chasing after other things, his neglect of God, and he has come and cried out to his Lord, and he comes to this amazing conclusion. Which is really the, the culmination of rather than chasing after other things, salvation belongs to the Lord. But what's wild about our culture is there is resources that abound in this room. There's talent that is uh, amazing. There is resources, there is opportunity, there's And we love to rest on those things to make life work. It's only when Jonah realizes he cannot save himself that things are wrapped around him. He is going down to the very place of Sheol or or the place of the pit, uh, being abandoned of God, is that he realizes God's grace and his goodness to him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Is that the echo of your heart this morning? Because if it is not, you really are outside of the grace of God. Are you trusting in anything else other than the living God for your hope? Because Jonah, along with the rest of the scriptures, speak to us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you trust him? Do you know him this morning? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would take uh, your word, take uh, a fellow struggler like Jonah, and God, I pray that uh, our own waywardness, our own trust in ourselves, uh, our own neglect of who you are, Father, that you would expose that, you would slow us down and help us to see it so that we might come back and cry out to you, the living God. Father, help us to know your salvation. Encourage us in that. And uh, Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for the minor prophets. Um, And God, that uh, these words call us back to trust you, to know you, and to love you. And Father, we pray that these things, by the power of the Spirit, would sink deep into our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.